Welcome to Raise and Deploy, a podcast dedicated to international investments with insights from the world's leading investment professionals from New York to Timbuktu. Each episode, we bring on a new guest to discuss the trials and tribulations that occur when seeking substantial returns in foreign markets. We cover the full life cycle of an investment, from the moment you contemplate raising capital offshore to the final check cashed on the returns. In this episode, we cover the story of Jai's managing partner, Marcelo Martins. He discusses how he broke into the global investment management space and how he successfully raised and deployed close to a billion dollars across Brazil. Our conversation covers the whole investment cycle from US to Brazil and back again. And Marcelo shares his insights on investing into distressed debt, the challenges when raising money from international LPs, and how the fund accounts for the currency risk that is affecting their investors today. All right. Morning, Marcelo. Good to see you again. Good morning. How are you doing, Ashley? Yeah, not too bad. Good to see you again. You just got yourself back from Brazil, right? You're in Sao Paulo for a few weeks. Yes. As you know, we, we do have an office in Sao Paulo and uh, also an office in New York. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Good to see you again. And um, thank you for being on the on the show. Um, we've known each other for, for years now. Uh, you were one of my first ever clients um, when we started the company back in uh, 2020. And yeah, we've been on a ride. Uh, but this is about learning a little bit more that happened before and on next. So really excited to get into the to the weeds with you. And probably the best way to start, start it is, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, Jive, uh, how you got to Jive. And we'll, we'll go from there. Start at the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, I have a background in engineering and then I did my MBA at Harvard Business School. Uh, from that point on, I, I started my career in banking and then right after into private equity. So where it all started with Jive, I was in the private equity business for, for a few years. And then back in 2010, I met my two co-founder partners um, when I was doing a transaction in Brazil in the private equity space. And then that's when we started investing and actually created Jive. That's really interesting. So that was a co-investment opportunity that you're working with and just happened to be with now. What are your co-founders in Jive? Is that how it all came about? Actually, very interesting, actually. What happened back then, uh, I had the experience in the private equity sector. My two partners had experience in uh, in, in the legal framework of particularly non-performing uh, loans. And one of them was in the entrepreneurial track, basically providing services for international uh, private equity firms and other firms, basically setting up operations for you know new funds. And uh, the three of us realized there was an amazing opportunity to acquire a portfolio from Lehman Brothers. As you know, 2008, 2009 were very uh, uh, turbulent times and Lehman had a portfolio that they were selling in different parts of the world. And we got very interested in acquiring a portfolio from Lehman uh, that was in Brazil. Wow. So <laughs> you went right at the, uh, the the top of the financial crisis, man. That's, that's, that's really impressive. And so Jive span off of that opportunity, that portfolio of assets? Exactly. Back then, we, we were not very capitalized, uh, but we were able to raise capital about $15 million. And we acquired a portfolio of non-performing loans out of the Lehman bankruptcy process. Uh, and the portfolio had $500 million in face value. So imagine we paid three cents on the dollar, which was an incredible wow. opportunity. 
we were quite convinced it was going to work, but you can imagine we raised money with family, friends, so it had to work no matter what. Yeah, that's the one. There's nothing worse than going back to your your mum and dad and saying that you've lost all their money and they can't live in their house anymore. I could imagine the stress that you went under, but that is impressive. So, how long did it take you to raise the 15 million? Uh, you mentioned it was friends and family. Were there any institutional players at all in that? No, back then, no, it was a lot of our own personal capital. Uh, of course, capital that we had already, um, you know, saved throughout our, our uh, professional lives and some leverage that we got from local Brazilian investors, particularly high net worth investors. And after we did the acquisition that was in December 2010, this transaction was fully approved by the bankruptcy uh, process here in New York City. So it was running in the bankruptcy court. And then we, we run that portfolio for about four years, between 2011 and 2014. That portfolio gave us over 300% IRR, so it was an incredible transaction. Um, and based on that uh, uh, track record, uh, then we, we raised our first fund, which was in 2015. You certainly you know, spent time during this whole process. So what were you doing during that kind of time to, to get yourself and prepare yourself for this, for this fund outside of the track record and you know, obviously um, testing uh, the tires on, the, um, on the, the likelihood of this fund being a successful raise? Uh, what were you working on for, for Fund One? Had you run a fund and set up a fund yourself? You mentioned your, your partners had. Yes, I was in the private equity sector for many years. So I had the experience in running a fund and particularly having a relationship with uh, LPs and investors. And uh, very interesting, the asset class which we deploy capital is particularly on distressed assets, which includes distressed real estate, uh, legal claims, and uh, non-performing loans, particularly on the corporate side. So as you can imagine, those are very technical markets. So we had to build alongside the investment platform, a servicing platform. So between 2011 and 2015, when we actually raised the first fund, we were able to build an organization with close to five, five uh, sorry, can you repeat that? Yep. So when we, we started increasing the platform for Jive, we built a platform with approximately 50 employees. So we had servicing professionals as well as investment professionals. Having that fully integrated platform was key in order to actually raise a successful fund, deploy capital, and then collect on that capital. Very interesting. So you built an engine, an ecosystem to be able to deliver the distress part of the portfolio and service the debt as well as actually find and you know you know manage it and you know raise the the capital so you were actually servicing uh, the companies as well that's really interesting and had anyone ever done something like this before in brazil were you kind of the first movers into this there were other investors uh, particularly working on consumer non-performing loans so when we talk about consumer non-performing loans think about credit cards personal loans auto loans and so on, which is a lot more competitive business. And um, normally these companies work together with uh, call centers and other collection agencies. We had a portfolio that was actually in that space. Uh, in our first fund, it was equivalent to approximately 3% of our NAV. Uh, but we never really liked that sector so much because of the reason I mentioned. Uh, normally lower returns. Um, also, there is more correlation with the overall economy because you can imagine that if someone is actually uh, defaulting on a credit card, uh, 
and is unemployed, uh, that's exactly where you're going to see, you know, the, the lower collection cycle is going to happen at the bottom of the economy. And what we want to build is actually the opposite. We, we look into assets, which is going to give us a, a, a low correlation with the overall market, including the stock market and, um, and capital markets in general. Amazing. That's really, really interesting. And the the thing that I like about it as well is almost that you borrowed the same approach that the consumer loan uh, funds were ultimately ultimately operating in, and kind of borrowed some of their successes and their techniques and built a you know distressed corporate real estate uh, non-performing loan version of it, right? And and I love that um, the fact that you're looking at non-correlated. So now you're in Fund One. You've done Fund One. How much did you raise for Fund One? We raised back in 2015 approximately $150 million, and we were able to deploy almost 300. Uh, and I, I explain how that works. Uh, yeah, we, during the investment period, we have uh, normally six-year funds. The first three years, we deploy capital, uh, and then the last three years, we will distribute back to the LPs. And during the investment cycle, which is the first three years, we actually recycle everything that we collect. And we also normally have co-investment opportunities that we offer to our LPs, particularly the larger institutional LPs. So then it's very normal that we deploy more capital than what we actually got in, in commitments uh, on top of calling normally 100% of the capital committed from LPs. Wow, amazing. Nice uh, nice gig if you can get it. Uh, so you've got, um, and how, how much of that um, 150 was raised offshore uh, and, and what was kind of the breakdown of the investors that had um, invested with you for Fund One? Yeah, sure. And I can disclose that because a lot of this is public information. Um, we worked uh, particularly with Fred Swiss uh, in Brazil. At the time, 2015, Credit Suisse had the second largest wealth management platform in the country. So they brought a number of high net worth investors and mostly family offices. They invested approximately 80% of the total capital that we raised back then. We also got a few international investors, but mostly high net worth investors uh, based in the US and Europe. And there was one fund called Sigular Guff. They're based in New York, uh, very well known into the distressed world. And they were uh, a key investor for us uh, in fund one, two, and three. They deployed capital uh, alongside the fund and, and also as an LP in the fund. Yeah, I know the guys at Siglaga very very well. Uh, it's so important that you have that kind of anchor uh, partner when launching, you know, your official fund. Right, so eighty percent of the capital coming from that that one partner was obviously key. And I'm sure you're looking for that, you know, in every fund and every vintage. And I'm sure listeners as well will be looking for those those types of key investors, those cornerstone investors. So, you you mentioned the success of Fund One. Fund two comes around. What were the main differences between fund one or fund two? Or should I say, let me rephrase that question. What were, when you're looking at fund one and fund two, what was the growth that you wanted to see from fund two? Was it just more um, more capital? We realized that the opportunity set was uh, increasing significantly in Brazil. And I'll explain uh, how. Uh, normally we do business with banks, uh, locally in Brazil, where we buy non-performing loans from the banks. And uh, to a certain extent, we also buy real estate properties. Think about real estate properties that the banks foreclosed eventually from uh, bad loans. 
and then they need to sell those to clean their balance sheets. So as we started to work with the larger banks in Brazil, uh, we saw a very large opportunity and uh, we realized very early on that we needed a lot of capital to actually take advantage of that opportunity. And uh, we have a very, I would say, small number of uh, competitors back then. So we decided to raise a fund uh, close to $500 million uh, back in 2018, which was our second fund. Okay, great. And what was the mix there? Um, again, you've, you've you already kind of tapped into your high net worth and your, your family offices through Credit Suisse private wealth management team. Um, are you now getting institutional uh, grade investors outside of Sigler Guff coming in? Exactly. I think work that we did uh, back then was also talking to consultants. So one key uh, consultant that has helped us quite a lot was Cambridge Associates. As you know, they have a very interesting uh, platform and uh, they did a lot of a lot of research uh, on us and they, they approved us to their clients. So through the Cambridge Associates approval, we got investments from uh, pension funds and we can mention a few of them that are actually public information. So San Francisco Retirement System, for example, they invested with us uh, on our second fund. We got a number of institutional investors based in the West Coast as well as in the East Coast in the US. Uh, we also got institutional investors in Europe. Uh, and then we got a large family office out of Singapore. So we started then diversifying our, our LP base across different areas of the world, um, adding to approximately one third of the total LP base now being LPs outside of Brazil. Credit Suisse continued to work with us throughout fund two, and they raised most of the capital that we, we raised locally in Brazil. Great. Uh, I want to just um, uh, dive down a little bit more into working with the likes of Cambridge Associates. I've been through a very small piece of, of that due diligence process. Can you go into a little bit more detail as to how strenuous that was and maybe share some of the um, the pieces that you, you had to go through to, to, to get approved by someone like Cambridge Associates? No, absolutely. And um, just to talk on, on that piece uh, in terms of advisors and consultants, uh, during Fund 3, for example, we worked very closely with Auburn advisors who also did a lot of due diligence on us. And in the process that these firms normally do on asset managers like ourselves is that they understand, they try to understand all the investment theses and basically interview all the portfolio managers and they start understanding the track record in detail. So there's a lot of work in terms of all the documentation related to all every single investment, the ones that worked better, the ones that worked uh, not as good. So they actually do look at each one of the investments and they, I would say, uh, validate the track record. And then there's also an operational due diligence where basically they will go into the company and, and look at every different uh, department, including the financial controls, uh, everything that comes with basically running an asset management firm. So I, I think it's a very thorough due diligence process. And of course, they do that work uh, um, for their clients. And it's very useful for institutional investors. That is a great segue into what I want to discuss uh, next. How prepared were you for uh, for that 
level of due diligence, especially the operational stuff. I know that your your track record was was great, and obviously your PM's doing a great job, and, and you got a lot of experience there. But running a fund is very different to actually trading a fund, right? And actually managing assets. So, uh, how well did you stack up to those operationally with the team that you had in place? And and you know, just go into that in a little bit more detail, please. Absolutely. I, I think that we learned a lot in that process. And uh, for every interaction and every due diligence that we do with these large firms, you learn new things. So some of the things that we actually improved throughout the process was in the governance, uh, risk and compliance departments. So we, we increased uh, the experience uh, of professionals in that area. So particularly in compliance and risk management, we added new people that had experience in other, from other funds. So that was very helpful for us. Uh, we also invested a lot in technology. So technology for us is key because as a fully integrated platform that has an asset management arm, as well as a servicing platform, particularly uh, collecting assets, mostly non-performing loans, uh, distressed real estate opportunities, and so on, we need to use technology in order to get scale. So we also basically hired a number of developers and start working with firms that could provide us um, basically platforms that would improve our scalability internally. Amazing. So fun too. Uh, can you talk about the um, the returns uh, and you know and and how how fun two performed? Absolutely. So our f- just starting off our first fund, the first fund we had already distributed close to two times cash on cash to our LPs, uh, that's approximately 20% IRR in local currency. We did not hedge our uh, positions for fund one and two. So the numbers we have in dollar terms and Brazilian terms are a bit different. In uh, in dollar terms for fund one, we run around 14 to 15% without the hedging feature. Uh, that's equivalent to 1.7 times multiple in dollars. And that's net already of management performance fees. In our second fund, we are running at around 21% now. Uh, We have 2.1 times uh, multiple in our returns for our Brazilian investors. Uh, But then there is here a a, a bit of a lower number for US dollar returns. We're running about 13% and 1.6 times MOIC. So then it was very clear to us at uh, fund two that uh, doing something about the FX exposure was going to be important particularly because we had uh, a, a very, uh, I would say, good um, visibility on cash flows on collections. So building a, a sound hedging strategy would be very important for Fund 3. And that's what we actually we did for Fund 3. Yeah, obviously, that's where we um, started uh, t- to speak. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because... You know, all these obviously these onshore returns were so impressive in Fund One, and they would continue to be impressive in in Fund Two. But as you grew um, into uh, you know globally, and, and your reputation grew, you're obviously going to attract more U.S. investors, especially now that you've got the backs the backing for the likes of Cambridge Associates that have approved you, Auburn Advisors, etc. So now you've got the world looking at you. And you know, your operational due diligence has to match up with that. But now you need a hedging strategy, right? Or potentially look at a hedging. How did that whole conversation come about? Was it as simple as that? The returns weren't commensurate to the Brazilian onshore returns. Uh, you know, how, how did that whole process start internally at the fund? 
No, absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, of course, the dialogue with our existing LPs uh, was very important, the, especially the LPs that are not Brazilian LPs and see our quarterly returns in, in US dollars. And what we realized back then, that's during fund two, is that even though we were running at 20, 21%, 22% returns in local currency, there was more fluctuation on the quarterly returns for our international investors in dollar terms. Because what the administrator does primarily is look at the FX at the last day of the quarter, and they will basically put together a, uh, um, a, a memo, a report, uh, with the returns in US dollars. And, and then investors are asking, why does it change so much? Is it anything in your portfolio that in, increases volatility in your returns? And, and basically, no. I mean, our returns are pretty stable and consistent. And then it was the effects at the time of the reports. So that gave us the idea that, okay, maybe having uh, a strategy that gives us more consistency uh, and reduce volatility on the effects is going to be important. And that's what really sparked our interest in, in doing something more specific in the hedging side. Great. So what was the first step you took towards hedging? How did that whole process start? Who, was it yourself that looked into it? Did you um, uh, look to outsource it immediately? What was your first kind of step into uh, looking at the hedging for fund three or fund two? Yes, that's a great question. Basically, we start talking to banks originally, and then we realized very early on that even though banks, large banks, and this includes includes global banks, um, they do have a platform where they can provide uh, hedging contracts and um, even very sophisticated contracts such as options and so on, but they don't really guide you through that process. What is the best strategy? What is the strike price? What should be the duration? What is appropriate for your cash flows? Does it, does it match your cash inflows and cash outflows? None of that comes with the banks. So we realized we needed to either build that capability internally, which of course would take time, or find an advisor that could guide us through that process. And uh, we were very interested in doing something that would give us a, um, a statistical analysis on, on the solution. So in other words, we wanted to, to see the proof uh, mathematically which were the best possible strategies to be used. So that's how we actually start talking to service providers in the market. And then that's how we start working with Diaglo, who basically showed us the experience and we thought was was a very good match for us back then. Yeah, obviously, you know, that that was a big part of what we wanted to try and uh, work with you. Is all about, obviously, of course, it's all about stabilization. But the most important thing when I think about risk management and any type of risk management, but especially currency uh, risk management, is it's got to make sense to everyone that's involved with it, right? So, you know, it's not just about putting a strategy in place and saying, okay, we're going to go ahead and do that because the bank says it, right? It's also about, can we explain this to our investors? Can we explain this internally? Can we run this internally? And can we adapt should we need to? Six years is a long time, right? And things are going to change and the currency like a Brazilian real is going to move a lot potentially. Uh, you know, we've got election cycles, you've got interest rates um, changing. All of these things come into uh affecting a foreign currency strategy, right? So you do need that ability to be able to stand by it and you need the the science and the mathematics behind it to be able to back it up. So no, it was it was, um, it was a great project to work on with you. And um, what I loved about it was in particular is once you got comfortable with it, 
how well you presented it to the other investors and how much confidence you had when going through that. So now we're at fund three. Uh, how much did you raise uh, fund three? And you know what was the kind of uh, dichotomy of uh, uh, onshore versus offshore? Absolutely. So fund three was really a very important milestone for us. Uh, we raised $750 million. And uh, when we went to market, we were very skeptical. It was in the middle of the pandemic. We started raising money in March 2020. And funny enough, I remember being in New York in March 2020, and I had a number of meetings set up. And after my second meeting, a lot of people started canceling, and they said, can we do a video call? And I was in my hotel room, one block away from their offices, and I was in a camera. And I'm like, well, I might just as well go back to Brazil. <laughs> so we did the whole uh, uh, fundraise process uh, remotely uh, through video calls that took us between uh, March 2020, and then we launched the fund in September 2020, uh, very successfully, $750 million. Um, we got approximately 60% uh, of the capital with uh, Brazilian investors and 40% of the capital with international investors. And, and this time around, we got, uh, I would say, very interesting LPs. Uh, the IFC, part of the World Bank, has been one of very, you know, our most important clients. Um, they committed $80 million to the fund. That's all public information is there in their website. And we also got a sovereign wealth fund investing with us out of Asia, which was for us very interesting. And also we started getting Canadian pension funds investing with us. So that has been, I would say, a, a, um, a very important milestone to get this diversified LP base. Amazing. What a story. So $750 million raised, 40% of it comes offshore. It's now into the head share class. Uh, how much do you think the head share class actually helped you during the uh, the raise? Was it something that there was, you know, it had to be done? Um, how, how much did that 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 share class help you uh, raise uh, fund three offshore? Yeah, so when we started the fundraising uh, offshore back in 2020, we offered to the investors uh, two feeders, one with hedging and one without hedging. Our expectation back then was that, you know, we should have a number of investors selecting one versus the other. And by the end of the process, there was only one small family office that would like to do the, the non-hedged investment vehicle. And their commitment was very small. So in the end of the day, they decided to switch to the hedged uh, investment vehicle. So everybody invests in that vehicle uh, with us. And I think that was very important because uh, our track record in local currency is very sound. And we have been in business for over 12 years now. So people can see that we have very consistent returns and uh, we have the relationships in place, puts in the ground, the right team in place, the right processes. So we know how to buy and how to divest. Uh, and investors are very comfortable that, with that process. Uh, the one question was always about, okay, what happens if the volatility on the currency wipes out my returns? So by offering a, a hedged class, we take that risk out of the table, which improves significantly our capability to raise capital. Amazing. So you're at what stage are you at with Fund Three now? And when did you decide that it was uh, the time to 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 start the build out for Fund Four? Yes, our Fund Three was launched back in September 2020, and uh, originally we had a three-year investment period, but the opportunity set in Brazil was so strong, 
And uh, we just finalized the investment stage uh, in December 2022. So a bit over two years, and we have already the full capital deployed. So we have deployed now uh, approximately $1 billion out of fund three. So that gave us also the, um, the conviction that we should raise a fund four that should be larger than fund three. So our target is $1 billion for fund four. Uh, so far, we have one first close uh, onshore in December. We raised so far $250 million. And now we are talking to international investors to, to start uh, finalizing the capital raise for Fund 4. So far, we got the IFC group uh, redeploying capital with us. And they now committed $120 million, which is a 50% increase from the original commitment from Fund 3. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, with regards to Fund 4, is there anything different? Are you, are you looking at different regions, different asset classes, or is it carbon copy of 1, 2, and 3? Every new fund that we launch, we increase the opportunities for investments and the verticals that we look into. Uh, and that's basically built upon experience. So I give an example. On Fund 1, we start investing in corporate non-performing loans. When we were actually collecting non-performing loans, we realized a lot of the collections would come from real estate divestments because the real estate were actually collaterals for the loans. And then we launched a vertical to invest in distressed real estate, which now is very successful. Uh, so we start building on the different asset classes. We start investing then in, in legal claims in fund two. And uh, now in fund three, we're also doing litigation finance because it's basically a continuation of the legal claim side. Uh, another example, we start investing in portfolios of non-performing loans. And then we start investing in certain single names, as we call it, which are most likely the special situations, financing and restructuring of larger companies. And now we have a, a financing special situations uh, vertical, primarily working with larger firms and better collaterals. So all those strategies will help us diversify even more our portfolios. And what they have in common is the fact that they are all have a very low correlation with the overall economy. So that's for us is key, is to build an, a portfolio that is very strong and protect returns in different scenarios during depressions or even during a very strong increase in the economy, uh, high unemployment rates, low unemployment rates, we want our, our returns to be consistent over different cycles. Well, one thing that's clear, you've seen them all. In Brazil, you get one of those every week. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, that's great to hear. And I'm sure that's a really powerful story uh, when you're going out there and speaking to LPs. So you mentioned there, Marcelo, that you've got some diversification into your portfolio at every vintage that you're dealing with. Is there any other regions that you're investing in? Yes, we by mandate, we can deploy up to 30% of the capital of our fund outside of Brazil. And uh, we have not used all that allocation. And uh, most likely, we're not going to fully use a 30% uh, threshold. But we have been looking into asset classes outside of Brazil. I can give you a few examples. Uh, litigation finance, we have built portfolios in the UK and the US. Uh, and that has, those have been very interesting. We always do that basically in partnership with local managers 
in those particular markets. Those particular managers also want to invest in Latin America. So there's a very important exchange of information and cooperation among ourselves, which, which is very important. And that diversifies our, our risk because we have then allocations in different markets, uh, different durations, different currencies. Uh, it all compounds into a much stronger portfolio. The same happens in real estate. We have now two large portfolios of distressed real estate opportunities that we acquired in the US. Uh, one particular transaction was in New York City. And then a second one we did in partnership with a company based in the Southeast of the US uh, is a chain of clinics in the East Coast. So those opportunities have been delivering us 20% uh, plus IRR in, in dollar terms. So they're great opportunities. It's just the, really the fact of being able to originate interesting transactions with local partners uh, that have established track record and that also have an interest in deploying capital in Latin America. So there's a very strong partnership to be built there. Yeah, very symbiotic. And also the benefit of diversifying into other regions as well is it is a currency hedge. Uh, you can naturally hedge out those exposures and again, bring your cost of hedging down. That's really interesting and uh, really exciting. So the UK, US uh, and Brazil, any other Latin American markets that you're looking at or emerging markets? Right now, we're looking at an opportunity in Colombia uh, in the legal claims space. So... There is a space that we do invest in Brazil in legal claims where are claims against the federal government. So in Brazil, those are situations related, for example, to imminent claim, real estate transactions, situations related to tax benefits to corporations, all situations where eventually there is a claim that we can collect against the government. Those are very uh, low risk re returns because basically you have a annuity uh, against the federal government. Uh, to the extent the government is paying those uh, uh, those debts, and they are, uh, is a matter basically of waiting until you get your, your payment. In Colombia, there's a very similar situation, and it's a fairly large market. About $8 billion per year is paid, and uh, now we're studying that market. And um, potentially, we'll close a transaction in the second quarter of this year. Wow. Uh, I mean, you've been speaking with such confidence in, in the markets and the way that you're going into them. We always end the uh, podcast in, in 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 this way, Marcelo. Can you give us one or two people that you would like to see on the next show? Yes, sure. I can think about a few people. Um, there is someone who has been following our history since the beginning. Uh, there's an asset management company called Newfoundland Capital. They also started around the same time that we did. They also have a very large LP-based outside of Brazil, and they are in the equities uh, segment. Um, Eric Fonseca is one of the partners and founders, and uh, he, he knows us very well. Great. We'll give, uh, give Eric a shout. Marcelo, thank you so much for, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, uh, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. Yes, I did. Thank you very much for the time, Ashley, and uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for tuning in to Raise and Deploy, the international investing podcast brought to you by Diaglo, the go-to FX platform for global investors. In this episode, we covered the fascinating story of Jai's managing partner, Marcelo Martins. One key takeaway for me is how getting the green light from a respected investment advisor can blow open the doors when raising capital from the world's largest LPs. 
We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we're looking forward to the next one. If you or anyone you know has experience investing internationally, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at jb at diaglo.com.